Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to get these doggies. They're out of the pan. We got to get them back in the in pan. In the pan, sure. In the sure, pan. We got to get them over to the last podcast network, Country Jamboree, June 18th, 2022 at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. Come and check out all the shows that you love on the last podcast network. We'll be in front of you in our meat space, and we cannot wait to entertain you and have a great time. But for those of you that can't come in person, go to momenthouse.com slash LPOTL and buy your live stream ticket. Yes. yes. You, too, can watch us perform our jangly country jamboree from the nudity of your couch. Absolutely fantastic. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Thank you so much for your support. And we are so excited to be at the OG Grand Old Opry. Hail yourselves. I'm Cena Gaznavi at Cena now on all social media. Justin Williams is here as always at Justin underscore Williams underscore comedy. Justin, it is so good to see you in the virtual studio. We've made a little change for our season finale here. Yeah, yeah, I'm very excited about this change. Yeah, a big change. We were going to do Elizabeth Holmes. By the way, we weren't, we weren't going to do like Elizabeth Holmes like, oh my God, let's talk about Elizabeth Holmes and she's such as like a sociopath. Oh my God. I wanted to talk about Sonny Balwani and Elizabeth Holmes. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. But with a string of like, I don't even know how many shootings that just happened, we had slated for this person, Wayne LaPierre, to be next season. And it was going to be cool to do Elizabeth Holmes, too, because, like, one of the lab directors from Ubiome worked at Theranos, and we were going to try to get him, but we couldn't make it work. But anyways, it doesn't matter. Wayne LaPierre, NRA, the Second Amendment. And I'm wondering how we should approach all of this. And there's a few parts here. There's the financial fraud that in August 2020, New York Attorney General Letitia James sued LaPierre and three other NRA executives for an alleged engagement in illegal financial conduct. 
They're being accused of undercutting the NRA's charitable mission. Ooh, that's so sad. Yeah, the NRA is one of the world's great charities, right up there with St. Jude's Hospital. But I think this gives us a chance to talk about how the NRA became so powerful and how the Second Amendment has truly been weaponized. Because in law school, I learned about the Second Amendment, but we didn't dive into how it was drafted or why it was drafted. We just saw that over time, the way the Supreme Court interpreted the Second Amendment shifted. Now, why is that? Well, like most things in America, it took time to influence the public perception into thinking something else. And before you know it, we're talking about the Second Amendment in a way that it was never intended. So, don't worry. This won't be Hamilton. We won't trick you with a hip-hop song about the Second Amendment. Which, by the way, I, I generally prefer my hip-hop on a hip-hop album, not a musical, but I don't want to say anything too controversial here. But what I'm going to show you is that the original intent of the Second Amendment was never to give an individual the right to bear arms. Well, my name is Alexander Hamilton. I got real charms. Oh. I want to tell you about how I have my right to bear arms. Mm-hmm. I've got my oh. wigs and my... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, please. Please help me. <laughs> Honestly, what is that? that's going to happen, I think. Yeah. That's coming up. Yeah. The, the sequel. <laughs> well, the Bill of Rights uh, in general was demonstrably a, a political compromise. You know, the Second Amendment's true intent was to actually control slaves and to defend against slave rebellion. And that even until the 1960s, the Second Amendment did not keep states, federal or otherwise, from passing laws that presumed would help keep people from being murdered. The NRA, for example, through its revolution in 1977, with help from the almighty gun manufacturers, worked to create an influence campaign through news media, legal scholarship, and politics to change the idea of what the Second Amendment was. Wayne LaPierre was the tool used by the NRA to execute that vision. He was a perfect vessel to carry this message. He was nerdy, kind of a weak backbone, a white guy in the right place at the right time time. We used articles, interviews, books, and white papers in this series, and notably, these two legal articles that I found interesting, one from Professor Carl T. Bogus, I know, what a last name, (laughs) from UC Davis Law Review in 1998, and the other from Paul Finkelman of the Chicago Kent Law Review in 2000. Justin, the Founding Fathers were not fearless. They were fearful, in fact, afraid of this tenuous union falling apart. And like any political situation, they needed everything to work just right so that they could cross the finish line. These were not unlike politicians today. Yeah, except for Kristen Cinema has much cooler wigs than Thomas Jefferson, though. Oh, my God. With the blue or the purple? I don't even know. Fear is the great mover. Fear of a primary challenger. Fear that jobs will leave your state or district, and you'll be out of a job. The southern states, the slave-owning states, the states whose economy entirely ran off of slavery, were afraid that the new union would undermine their economic prosperity and, worse, security. Don't believe me? Just, Just look at today. Literally every politician is afraid of some economic change to their state. Yeah, and that fear is even worse when you're super guilty about sexually assaulting and beating your workers. (laughs) (laughs) 
even when those jobs represent an industry that is clearly poisoning our environment. Jobs that really shouldn't exist anymore. Sorry. Here's a clip of Joe Manchin in 2013 talking about coal miners. Now, just replace coal miners here with slave owners. I want to apologize. I want to apologize for the dysfunction you see here. Dysfunction in Washington. No one should be suffering right now. This is the greatest country on earth, and you've made it. You don't take a back step to anybody. Let me hear it from the West Virginia coal miners out there. Let's hear it from Let me say this. I have said this, and I will continue to sell over this country wherever I go. There shouldn't be a man, woman, or child in America that doesn't say a prayer every night for, for a, a slave owner. They give them the life they have today. If it wasn't for the energy that's been produced by the coal slave miners owners. of America, we wouldn't have the greatest nation. We wouldn't be the superpower. We wouldn't have won the wars we won. A coal miner mines the coal we make the steel that builds the guns and ships that basically supports the factories and the jobs it takes to build America. We've done it all. We've done the heavy lifting. Don't take a back step to anybody. We're working right now with Ed Whitfield. Con- builds the jobs, lifts up America, wins the wards, builds up everything. Oh, I wonder where it comes from. I mean, this was a better pitch to West Virginia voters than Hillary Clinton's, where it was like, <laughs> you guys are fucked. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you should vote for me because I'm going to put you out of a job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that ended up kind of being a mistake. It is, to a certain extent, just lie to them. You, you could have done better, maybe. Yeah, it would have saved us a little bit of time. Yeah. Uh, but isn't that? But am I am I wrong there, Justin? Does that not resonate with you? I feel like it feels so connected. Yeah, I mean, I think Hillary Clinton was much more realistic. She was like, "Coal is not sustainable, and that's going to continue to be a shrinking industry, and we'll try to figure something else out." But that's not what voters there wanted to hear. You know, voters you know, want to hear that the you know that the status quo is going to continue, even if they know it's the diminishing returns. You know. Yeah, exactly. So forget the idea of of whatever you think about what was happening in West Virginia or anything like that. But it's like the status quo of what was keeping the southern states afloat was slavery. Why would they want to risk anything that would take that away? Especially when southern elites were living a lifestyle that put them on par with any other elites in the world at the time. (laughs) Yeah. French aristocrats were like, damn, what are they doing over there? (laughs) But you know what else I think about here, though, Justin, is that it's like, please, please don't tell me that these founding fathers were some sort of courageous men or something. They were, they were not even less anxious. The men of 1787 were not chiller than they are today. Maybe they were slightly less anxious because they were on social media, but their lives were at stake. Their complete livelihood was at stake. That's the fact that you just can't debate, you know, and it's, it's a mess. After the revolution, the North was becoming increasingly grossed out by slavery. And let me just say, it doesn't mean that they were going to blow up their constitution. I mean, a lot of them were very much racist, if we were to use today's values, even lightly. I mean, even back then's values, they were still, you know, at least indifferent to the plight of black people at that time. But they weren't going to blow up slavery. It was uncouth to own slaves. Is that fair to say, Justin? Sure. Google the New York City draft riots if you want to see the complication of Northerners that were against slavery, but also hated black people and didn't see them as social equals. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I like that you were able to cite very specific documents. So to look at it this way, even if the Northerners were not all for abolishing slavery, and they probably all weren't, a lot of them were at least indifferent to the plight of slave owners in the South. Frankly, much like a lot of people are indifferent to the plight of coal miners in West Virginia, 
yeah, it's bad if they all lost their jobs, but it's still poisoning our environment. I'm sorry you're going to lose your jobs. I mean, this goes back to what you were saying, what Hillary Clinton said. She's like, I'm sorry. But it's not a viable business anymore. It's tough to say when it comes to coal miners. It's quite a bit easier of an argument to make when it comes to slave owners. But the, the fear and anxiety around losing your economic engine is still the same. Do you know how much of the population in Virginia at that time, back in the 1787s-ish, uh, was black? Justin, do you, do you know? Considering uh, half of black people have the last name Washington or Jefferson, I'm going to say <laughs> quite a bit. Forty-four <laughs> percent. Virginia's total population was so black in some areas, like like the eastern part of the state. Blacks were actually in the majority, and in some parts, there was a huge fear that literally whites would get their heads chopped off. Which actually happened by the grace of Allah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I want to... Bismillah. But I want to read from this paper now, from Carl T. Bogus. God, he could have could have picked a pen name. He couldn't have picked a pen name. I'm putting a lot of weight on this guy. <laughs> this fucking bogus guy. Quote... <clears throat> In September of 1739, for example, a group of 20 blacks broke into a store near Stono, South Carolina, for guns and powder. They decapitated the two storekeepers, displayed their heads on the front steps, and then headed south, sacking and burning homes and killing whites on their way. They marched with flying banners, beating drums and calling out, Liberty! To attract more slaves to the rebellion. According to one account, their numbers increased every minute by new Negroes coming to them so that they were above 60, some say 100. But for a coincidence, the rebellion may have grown considerably larger and perhaps even succeeded. By chance, the lieutenant governor of South Carolina rode within eyesight of the rebel group while he was on his way to Charleston with the four men. Oh, Lord, what do we have here? As best events can be reconstructed, the lieutenant governor raced to the Presbyterian church in Willtown, which happened to be in the midst of a Sunday service, with or without Kanye, we don't know, and assembled a contingent of white planters. Sounds almost like he got a militia together, right, Justin? Yeah, and you could tell because uh, they all had Punisher logos on the backs of their horses. (laughs) (laughs) He goes on, by four in the afternoon, somewhere between 20 and 100 armed Punisher logo (laughs) mountain militia men attacked the rebel group. About 44 blacks and 21 whites died in the ensuing battle. As a warning against future insurrections, the militia decapitated black rebels and placed their heads up at every milepost they came to. However, At least 30 blacks escaped. The entire white population was ordered under arms, and a desperate manhunt was conducted to find the remaining rebels. It was not until a week later that a militia company located the largest remnant of the insurrection band and killed most of the group in a second battle. Perhaps half a dozen blacks escaped from the second battle, and one of their leaders of the rebellion 
was not captured until three years later. Yeah, this is the stuff that they don't teach you in school about the United States people. This is why Howard Zinn had to write a people's history of the United States. This is like, I can't imagine my like eighth grade history professor, Mr. Quinn, who was like a broad shouldered guy with was like a big handlebar mustache. He always he told us the real truth about America. And he did a pretty good job, but I wish he would have covered something like this. It would have really made this class more exciting. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Quinn, what happened? Man? You don't need to watch Game of Thrones for that kind of stuff. You can just go to... <laughs> 1700s and 1800s America. Chapter 7 of the American history book that never was. (laughs) So, fear. Everyone in the South knew about the Stono Rebellion. That was just one of the slave rebellions that had happened, and, and there's been over 250 that were recorded, and that's just the ones that included 10 or more. That fear would continue even after ratification of the Constitution. Thomas Jefferson, as you said, father to half of half of Virginia, in a letter in 1797 said that the, quote, day which begins our combustion must be near at hand, and only a single spark is wanting to make that day tomorrow. If something is not done and done soon, we shall be the murderers of our own children. Uh, it's like maybe the ultra violence around the forced labor against these people was it the best idea? Do we have do we have an angry slave problem perhaps? <laughs> yeah, and we should also talk about Thomas Jefferson uh, wanting to protect his children. Yeah, <laughs> he's like which set which set of children, Thomas. Yeah. But anyway, it reminds me of the old, uh, you know, uh, slogan. You know, workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. Ah, I mean, this the this guy Thomas Jefferson. What a piece of work! All right, so Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia, all were scared, and to be safe, they had regulated slave patrols. By the mid 18th century, these patrols had become the responsibility of the state militia. Slave patrols did monthly searches of plantations. They searched slave houses for weapons and ammo, and if they had to apprehend or punish anyone, they would give 20 lashes to any slave outside of the plantation grounds. This is, again, the state militia doing this. This is a dark prequel to Paul Blart Mall Cop. (laughs) Jesus. This is where Jamie Foxx it's like a Tarantino version, <laughs> and he has to get revenge against Paul Bart. Yeah. Paul Bart, slave militia patrol. Another note here on the militias is that, yes, in the revolution, early on, Bunker Hill, they got some wins. Mel Gibson made a movie. Great. But these militias were still just men, the same men that the lieutenant governor went to the church, the Sunday service, and was just like, we need help. Oh, my God. They weren't soldiers. They were just dudes. (laughs) They weren't part of any standing army. They weren't jarheads. Is that, I don't know if I'm allowed. Can I say jarhead? Is that a derogatory term for a Marine? Is that even a word for Marine? No. That's a slang term for Marines. They say that themselves. That's the the thing, right? Okay, good. Because that was that movie with Jake Gyllenhaal. I figured it's okay if Jake Gyllenhaal did it. You know, Prince of Persia. You son of a bitch. They were just basically a collection of guys. It was basically Yosemite Sam and Larry the Cable Guy. Yeah, why not? I think as athletic as Larry the Cable Guy (laughs) and maybe as tall as Yosemite Sam in some instances. So now while there was support for militias because a standing army felt too centralized, too British, the militia 
Well, they like to get drunk. And George Washington wrote in 1776, quote, Seldom a day passes, but some persons are shot by their friends. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine this guy is leading an entire army, and he's like journaling that day, and he hears a gunshot, and he goes outside of his tent, and he just sees like, oh my god, Jebediah, you shot me again. (laughs) He's like, oh my god, I gotta go write in my journal now. Well, we progress enough now to where our friends only shoot each other on Xbox Live. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Fighting a war is really hard. George Washington, again, wrote to Congress. (laughs) George Washington's diary has gotta be so funny. Just a grumpy-ass old man. So, here's what he wrote. Quote, the militia are dismayed, intractable, and impatient to return home. Great numbers have gone off, in some instances, by whole regiments. <laughs> so, so like, these militia, the, these guys were just like, mm, uh, yeah, I've had enough. I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this other myth that, like, America, I think, like, like, there's so many guns in America now. But back then... It's not like everyone grew up like a marksman, like hunting for their own food and stuff like that. A lot of the food they got was like doing trade deals with Native Americans or farming. These were not people that grew up with guns their whole life. Researchers actually went through thousands of probate records from frontier areas of northern New England and western Pennsylvania for the years 1765 to 1790. They found that although the records were so detailed that they listed items as small as broken cups, only 14% of the household inventories included firearms, and 53% of those guns were listed as not working. Yeah, especially when you're familiar with like that you know, stage of gun technology. I wonder how many of those weapons actually just blew up in their owners' hands and faces like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, exactly. Is that because the cigar got put in the end of the barrel? <laughs> yeah. Or like <laughs> Okay, so Justin, I know that that is a lot of backstory just to lead up to some more backstory on how we got to the Second Amendment. But this is where it gets a little bit more dramatic. Let me set the stage for you. The first Constitutional Convention happens May 25th, 1787. Then you have eight states ratify, with only a ninth to carry this home. Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Georgia, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maryland, South Carolina, all on board. They were sure New Hampshire, they didn't want it, they didn't want it to happen. New York, probably not. Virginia, they were kind of split. There was a lot of Federalists and a lot of Anti-Federalists that lived in the state, but it was a huge slave state. So at their state convention, it was like the event of, it was like SummerSlam. And it was like the Royal Rumble. Everyone came out. And so we're going to take a quick break. And brother, when we come back at SummerSlam, we're going to talk about Patrick Henry and the Richmond Convention. Woo! <laughs> I just had that idea of like, it's just. You know, they're like getting ready to ratify the Constitution and you just hear Brock Lesnar's music come on and he just like starts (laughs) tossing wigs around. (laughs) All right, let's go to a break. (laughs) 
Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. It's June 2nd, 1788. The Richmond Convention's happening, and it's very dramatic. This was like a sold-out show, oversold. There was apparently 173 members of the Virginia Assembly, plus the crowd. The initial place they actually had that they wanted to do it was over capacity, so they had to move to a different location. That sounds a lot like the last podcast network jamboree, live at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee, this Saturday. Streaming tickets still available. And if you're listening to this after our Ryman show, we're sorry you missed it, but I'm sure we'll be touring again soon. <laughs> okay, so the two sides. The Federalists had James Madison. <laughs> What's the bulls in the intro? Yeah. Maybe we can play that. <laughs> James Madison. Serious by the Alan Parsons Project. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. The two sides, the Federalists, had James Madison, architect of this shiz knit. He wants a powerful central government. On the other side, Patrick Henry, the Grand Order, but in his later years, not as analytical as he once was. And George Mason, governor of Virginia. <laughs> And it's 6-6 from the University of North Carolina, Michael Jordan. I saw Patrick Henry 
led the opposition, and I took that personal. <laughs> the anti-federal. <laughs> yeah, that's how he gets motivated. I'm not saying Sam Madison wasn't a threat. He was. But... <laughs> <laughs> He just upset me that day. So the anti-federalists wanted to destroy the Constitution, or or remake it at least. This was their last stand. If they could hold strong, then maybe they could turn the tide. So they're going for everything. First, Patrick Henry brings up the idea of who should be controlling the militia. Let me here call your attention to that part which gives Congress power to provide for organizing army and disciplining the militia and for governing such a part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. By this, sir, you see that their control over our last and best defense is unlimited. Boy, these guys would really freak out if they saw the Imperial Presidency Commander-in-Chief setup that we've got going since <laughs> yeah. Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, they would be very unhappy. I mean, let's but let's think about it, though. Who are they saying defense against who? Because it's not the British because they already had a standing army for that. They're talking about their own militia. And that's what's being unified together, funded, controlled, disciplined by Congress to do what Congress wants. That's the important part here. He goes on. If they neglect or refuse to discipline or arm our militia, they will be useless. The states can do neither, this power being exclusively given to Congress. The power of appointing officers over men not disciplined or armed is ridiculous so that this pretended little remains of power left to the states met at the pleasure of Congress be rendered nugatory, which I think was a a weed strain I smoked one time. Nugatory. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, right here, this is what's important. The power of appointing officers over men not disciplined or armed is ridiculous. So disciplined, like trained or armed. This is what they're, they're not afraid of the foreign power. His point was that he's afraid that Congress won't train the drunk guys that were shooting each other in camps that in their militia. By the way, Virginia's militia, awful, particularly awful. But the militia was the last and best defense against a slave Insurrection. And yes, this is the beginning of one of America's great hit formulas. It's called working class white men with guns who defend the social order that they don't actually dominate. <laughs> George Mason steps up. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, unless there be some restrictions on the power of calling forth the militia, we may very easily see that it will produce dreadful oppressions. It is extremely unsafe without alterations. It would be to use the militia to a very bad purpose if any disturbance happened in New Hampshire to call them from Georgia. If gentlemen say that the militia of a neighboring state is not sufficient, the government ought to have the power to call forth those of other states the most convenient and contiguous. But in this case, the consent of state legislatures ought to be had. On real emergencies, wait a minute, on real emergencies, 
what what real emergencies do you think he's talking about? Could it be that the humans you've raped, abused, and enslaved possibly trying to fight for their freedom when the militias that are controlling them go and fight a battle in another part of the country? No, no, no. I'm sure I'm sure it's probably for the hunter fighting for his right to shoot the hogs on his farm. <laughs> yeah. With an AR-15. On real emergencies, this consent will never be denied. Each state being concerned in the safety of the rest. This power may be restricted without any danger. I wish such an amendment as this that the militia of any state should not be marched beyond the limits of the adjoining state, and if it be necessary to draw them from one end of the continent to the other, I wish such a check as the consent of the state legislature be provided. Mason's adding to what Henry said here and saying that if Congress is controlling the militias, then Congress could just send them anywhere from Virginia, could send them to New Hampshire. But the consequence of this is obvious, right? If the people that were, again, made to regulate the slave, the slave patrols, which are controlled by the militia, which were the militia, what would happen to the slaves? I don't know. Do you think they would want to fight for their freedom? Yeah, I'm very intrigued by the distrust between states that you've seen here, right? It lets you know just like how fragile nationalism is at the beginning. It's like, if we're in New Hampshire and somebody from the faraway land of Georgia comes, how will we know (laughs) that they won't raid our lands as Mongols? You know, it's like, what? It's like they don't even see each other as being like part of the same civilization almost, yeah. Oh my God, that's so true. There is just speaks to kind of like this dark forest mentality where if they're so far away, you can't see them. So how do you trust them? You don't know how to trust them. You just know the kind of stories that you hear. And the only thing you can trust is distrust. But here's Mason's money shot, though. George Mason says, Under various pretenses, Congress may neglect to provide for arming and disciplining the militia. And the state governments cannot do it, for Congress has an exclusive right to arm them. Look at that. That's crazy. That's huge right there. He's partly concerned with the fact that government creating this is like a standing army, of course. But he was really concerned with upholding the militia. George Mason. The great George Mason University. George Mason, the great owner of 300 slaves. How do you think he handled that with his own detail? Huh, the same detail that protected Biggie? No, the militia. (laughs) The fucking militia. Here's Patrick Henry's money shot, though. Very direct. This is where it's just like heavy-handed at this point. Which, by the way, at this time, it's uncouth to talk about slavery publicly. Mm -hmm. So they kind of just brush it under the... It's like they're all very... It's like you don't want to talk about it. He looks at Article 1, Section 10 that basically says that... Of the Constitution. That says that no state can engage in war without congressional approval. And he was kind of using this rhetorical device to himself. If you give this clause a fair construction, what is the true meaning of it, and what does it relate to? He would go on to say, not for domestic insurrections, but war. If the country be invaded, a state may go to war but cannot suppress insurrections. If there should happen an insurrection of slaves, the country cannot be said to be invaded. They cannot therefore suppress it without the interposition of Congress. Congress, and Congress only, can call forth 
the militia. Come on, that's it, guys. This is the crux of the argument. This is critical. This is the fear tactic. This is the coal miners being told by Joe Manchin that your jobs are at risk with Hillary Clinton, which was obviously true, okay? And so this is this is where James Madison kind of steps in it too. This critical fear that was used was used so that James Madison would provide some sort of concession that would, would maybe break this union, would break this constitution and not allow Virginia to ratify. Madison steps in it here and he... He responds to Patrick Henry and George Mason and their argument that Congress was the only one that could arm the militia, and he says to them that this power is, quote, not exclusive but concurrent. You fucked up, bro. You're supposed to be about a strong central government, and then you just said, it's not exclusive. We're not exclusive. We can date other people, and you can arm yourselves while we arm each other, too. Yeah. And I, I would say the fear of dual like invasion and insurrection uh, is actually a pretty valid one because actually during the Revolutionary War, Britain offered freedom to slaves that uh, you know joined the loyalist cause. Yeah, this is a real fear. If you're a slave, why would you not fear this? This is not even an absurd fear. This is not like pedophile pizza like shop owner. This is a legitimate fear that the government that's being formed could. Take out the legs from under you. Again, a legitimate fear of the coal miners who are afraid that a Hillary Clinton administration would ruin their jobs. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. So Patrick Henry's like, mm, shit, you gonna fucked up now. I got you. He says, quote, as my worthy friend says, I see what a shit eating grin I'm sure he had at this point. As my worthy friend said, there it's do you know what it also reminds me of? It also reminds me of anyone debating Stephen A. Smith on yeah. first take. And when Stephen A. Smith says something <laughs> stupid, they're just like, Stephen A., this is what you said. You said this, Stephen A. We got you. We fucking got you. As my worthy friend said, there is a positive partition of power between the two governments. To Congress is given the power of arming, organizing, and disciplining the militia and governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States. To the state legislatures is given the power of appointing the officers and training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. I observed before that if power be concurrent as to arming them, then it is concurrent in other respects. If the states have the right of arming them concurrently, Congress has concurrent power of appointing officers and training the militia. If Congress have that power, it is absurd. To admit this mutual concurrence of powers will carry you into endless absurdity that Congress has nothing exclusive on the one hand, nor states on the other. Dude, he reductio ad absurdum his candy ass. I mean, Madison totally steps at it. If the powers are concurrent, why did you even say that they're exclusive? Why are we even making this powers different? Why are we even talking about it? 
Why are we even talking about it, Justin? I'm going to make a guess that uh, America's founding race and class divisions lead it to some very hypocritical stances when it comes to what the country oh. stands for. <laughs> please, please, please. Come on. Come on. <laughs> not being fair. <laughs> Honestly, I hope I hope no one ever makes a musical about this whole time period. Who would have Who would have thought a country built on both the ideas of liberty and slavery would have some like insane debates about how that was going to work out in the government? With <laughs> some conflicts on how that's all going. Patrick Henry went even further, speaking to slavery more directly. Which, by the way, I think people in the in the hall that they were in were probably like, "Oh my, Patrick Henry." Being very, very uncouth in this state. I don't even know. I speak very strangely of my impressions of them. I know we're not impressionists, which I kind of like, but it's fun to do these voices. Yeah. In this state, there are 236,000 blacks and there are many in several other states. But there are few or none in the northern states. Slavery is detested. They will search that paper. Talking about the Constitution. And see that they have power of manumission. And have they not, sir? Have they not power to provide for the general defense and welfare? May they not think that these call for the abolition of slavery? May they not pronounce all slaves free? And will they not be warranted by the power? This is no ambiguous implication or logical deduction. The paper speaks to the point that they have the power in clear, unequivocal terms and will clearly and certainly exercise it. Plain English. I mean, as, as English as I could have made it there. Congress would one day, since they have the power, emancipate the slaves because they don't give a shit about us. People of Virginia. It's almost as if the North and the South are going to have real problems over this issue moving forward in the history of the Republic. Foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) So remember, the Richmond Convention started on June 2nd, 1788. They thought they were the last stand. But motherfucking New Hampshire, on June 21st, 1788, ratifies the Constitution. It's a wrap. So now, if you don't ratify, you're literally your own place, your own country in isolation. No trade, no nothing. You're not part of the union. Good fucking luck. So all the anti-federalists could do at this point, even though they thought they had Madison dead to rights, all they could do was ratify on June 25th, 1788. Four days later... (laughs) Can you imagine those? how upsetting those four days were for all of them? They were like, we were so close. <laughs> but they said when they ratified, they would like the consideration of a Bill of Rights proposed by the Virginia Convention. The Anti-Federalists lost. So asking for the Bill of Rights was political. Let's get some kind of win here for our people. And when we come back, we're going to figure out how Madison actually drafted the Second Amendment and why the Richmond Convention mattered so much. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now, save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at StearnsAndFoster.com. Lesser savings may apply. 
Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, TruthFinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. TruthFinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Okay, welcome back. The Bill of Rights is ratified by 10 states on December 15th, 1791. And so you may well ask, well, Cena, there was a lot of time between those two periods when the Constitution was ratified and when the Bill of Rights was ratified. Why did James Madison even bother doing the Bill of Rights? Why, why did he do it at all? Because he won. Well, it's because he's a politician. And again, the guys back then were not different than the guys today. Some of them are still alive. <laughs> That's how old our Congress is. Patrick Henry is still in the Senate. Yeah, he's still he's still there. One more term. I still have yet to do my best work. <laughs> well, the fight's not totally over yet, especially for Patrick Henry. He goes all oh, House of Cards style. The British version. The British version, okay? The British version. And he goes all oh, House of Cards on them. And he does this very Machiavellian move. Henry supports Madison being a member of the old Transition Congress, which kept him out of Virginia. Madison was from Virginia, and so he was allowed to run for any seat, Senate or Congress, in this new America. Then, Patrick Henry also supports two anti-federalists to the Virginia Senate. So, Madison, caught up doing stuff for the old Congress, couldn't win the election for either Senate seat. And then, as a further fuck you... Henry had all the sway in Virginia. He goes and he actually gerrymanders Madison's home county afterwards to really stick it to him, where you could only run for Congress in your home county. That was the whole districting thing. So Madison's like, no, fuck this. I need to be in this new Congress. I'm writing the fucking thing. You guys can't ice me out. He needs to be in the mix. <laughs> it's kind of like being a Devil's Ray fan. Uh, right. And then you see Patrick Henry holding up the Red Sox and Yankees hands on stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Damn it. Okay. So Madison is in trouble. 
So he's got to get a seat here. And he runs for Congress. His opponent, James Monroe, who at that time was a champion for the Bill of Rights, which was very popular in Virginia. Madison, though, didn't support a Bill of Rights in Philadelphia or Richmond. He thought it was just bullshit because he's like, everything is in the Constitution. It's all there. Again, he's a politician. Popular opinion in Virginia was that they wanted a Bill of Rights. The coal miners, jobs, guns, we need a Bill of Rights. (laughs) So he did it. He started literally saying, I support a Bill of Rights, promising that if he was elected, he would work to append a Bill of Rights to the Constitution. Now, he wins that election, and he's in Congress in February of 1789. And he wanted to make sure that the Bill of Rights was not used by the Anti-Federalists to spark a second constitutional convention that would destroy what they worked so hard to create. Madison wasn't into the Bill of Rights, but he had some core beliefs that were super important to him. He called them the great rights, trial by jury, freedom of press, religious liberty, that kind of stuff. Tired of quartering British soldiers in your home. (laughs) Yeah. It's a a big, serious shit. So when it came time to make the Bill of Rights, all the states sent in their suggestions from their own state conventions and constitutions, right? There were 400 separate provisions that were suggested by 13 states. Okay, get this. Only four of the 13 state constitutions, Massachusetts, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Vermont contained a right to bear arms. Now follow me here. In Massachusetts and North Carolina, it was a collective right about the common defense. For Pennsylvania and Vermont, they wanted citizens the right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. Okay, so self-defense and the state, so like actual defense. Over two-thirds of the state constitutions did not contain a right to bear arms, and the minority was divided on the essential purpose of that right. Okay, so very few, and even among those few, there was a division on what was the real meaning, what, what kind of level of arm-bearing did we need. So the question remains, why would Madison, out of the 400 potential amendments that were submitted to him, pull out something that was only represented by a small, small minority of what states wanted. New Hampshire was actually the only state that suggested a right to bear arms was not, I repeat, not connected to the militia. I feel like that's actually still on brand. I think they have open carry in New Hampshire today. (laughs) New Hampshire's one of those states that are just like, we're fine. We're just going to keep doing this. (laughs) The same thing. Butter's churned over there all the time. Okay, so here's the first draft. On June 8th, 1789, four months after he went through an awful election, where he promised to make a Bill of Rights. Oddly enough, four months since he got into office and he already drafted a Bill of Rights is kind of way faster than anyone in our Congress today would work. So I think that's notable. They didn't have email. They didn't have word processing, just a quill and a pen, and he got to writing. Note to all the elected officials out there. I know you're all listening to fraudsters. Here's what the first draft said. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, semicolon. A well-armed and well-regulated militia being the best security of a free country, semicolon. But no person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms 
shall be compelled to render military service in person. That is one sentence, people. This is a long-ass sentence. Now, we don't know what was in his head when he wrote this. We just look at the construction. And, and what does this resemble? Remember the 400-plus amendments that were submitted? The Virginia Convention, the Constitution there, their proposed Declaration of Rights, this was their number 17. And look how it reflects. That the people have a right to keep and bear arms, semicolon, that a well-regulated militia, comma, composed of the body of the people, trained to arms, comma, is the proper, comma, natural and safe defense of a free state that standing armies, comma, in time of peace are dangerous to liberty and therefore ought to be avoided as far as the circumstances and protection of the community will admit. Semicolon. I just, they don't know what a period is in these people. <laughs> and that, in all cases, the military should be under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. Okay, this is number 19 now. And you're going to see the connections here. Number 19 said, that any person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms ought to be exempted upon payment of an equivalent to employ another to bear arms in his stead. Bearing arms. Bear arms in the militia. This is all militia shit. It's not about an individual. If it was about an individual from Virginia, why would they include any person, like a, a religious person, doesn't have to bear arms? They're talking about a requirement to bear arms or a right to bear arms, right, if you're in the militia. They have to bear arms when you're in the militia. You need to. Now, there's a whole school of thought that goes into, like, the linguistics of how Madison drafted this and what the commas and the semicolons mean, and you can also look at any sort of Scalia opinion, and he will get into some fucking semicolon talk. But the fact that he puts in this religious people thing about the militia, it just, for me, it settles it that it's about a militia. Also, remember, look, the beginning lines are exactly the same in his first draft as what Virginia is proposing, that the people have a right to keep and bear arms. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I mean, this is just pandering to the Virginia audience that put him in office. Here's the final drafting. A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Again, tons of linguistic shit we could spend hours on here, but let me be clear. There is no right to bear arms in the Second Amendment. There is only a right for members of a militia to bear arms. But you know what, Justin? It actually doesn't fucking matter what I think because the Supreme Court and their fucking geniuses over there and their conservative bullshit voted that this is what it means, that it means an individual right. They won. They literally won. They got to construe this fucking amendment in whatever way they wanted to. They backed into a meeting. They destroyed whatever they said. They were a strict constructionalist. The original intent of, of what the Second Amendment was for, they completely bastardized it. They won. No, and it, yeah, and there's no way that if you're an originalist, you could never say at the very least, you could never say that our founding fathers wanted like an extremely well-armed underclass. 
Yeah. <laughs> that's like, that's that's totally not in a top heavy society like that, that it experienced Bacon Rebellion, Shay's Rebellion, like these kind of things. They would have never wanted, yeah. yeah. We've never wanted people to be armed that way. And the only way you could disarm someone, presumably under this individual, right, is if they broke the law, right? And so at that time, if the only way you could, you know, take someone's rights away is if they broke the law, then presumably if someone had a gun or a musket or whatever the fuck they had back then and they just wanted to post up in the White House lobby a public space, presumably, that's fine and legal. And it's like, do you think they really wanted that? They wanted people just to be going armed in these spaces and threatening people with guns? No. They, the, the federal government wanted to be able to have control, reasonable regulation on these things. So the Second Amendment was drafted because James Madison needed to fulfill a campaign promise. And he echoed his own state's constitution because he was addressing the fears of his constituents that if they were not allowed to bear arms and a state-sponsored militia that the slaves would rebel. Whew. I'm very tired. That was a lot Yeah, the white wigs that we're wearing today yeah. are very much made us to get sweaty and we need to take a nap, you know. So I went through all this to show you how a fraud doesn't have to take place in a moment or a few months, but a several years. And in the case of the Second Amendment, at least, the evolution took decades. And so how did the Second Amendment go from this initial meaning and intent to what we have, what Wayne LaPierre and the NRA were able to lead its interpretation to be? Well, we're going to find out next week. That's right. The reality distortion field is the interpretation of the Second Amendment itself. (laughs) See reality distortion field. I want to give a big shout out to Ellie Mistal, whose book Allow Me to Retort was the inspiration for me to dive into this history. And, of course, Fraudsters is a production of Zero Cool Media and The Last Podcast Network. Katrina Chen is our production coordinator. Ian Brannon is our editor. Our theme music is by Simon Tafik. And some music in this episode was composed by Chris Olson. We'll see you next week, everybody. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today.